Vintage Guitar People. Welcome to How Guitar Will Travel, presented by Vintage Guitar Magazine. With your host, me, James Patrick Regan, otherwise known as Jimmy from the Deadlies. And today I'm speaking with guitarist and Fender R&D team member, Stan Cody. In our conversation, we cover his history at Fender and his work before that at Avid, working with Pro Tools. We talk about growing up in the Silicon Valley with musical parents working as an amp tech at local music stores. We talk about his work at Neve and Harrison building audio consoles. We talk about his home studio and his guitar work for the Pokemon franchise. He's worked in three different facets of R&D for Fender, most recently with guitars, initially amps, and now with Fender's relatively new pedal designs. We talk about the artist amps he's helped develop for Eric Clapton, Joe Bonamassa, and Michael Landau. We talk about Fender guitar R&D work and how that team interfaces with manufacturing, and how he interfaces with the custom shop. We talk about his love for the Fender guitars of the 50s and 60s, and we talk about the similarities between those guitars and the current American series line. We take deep dives into how Fender recreated the magnets used in the Seth Lover pickups. We talk about his new album of his own music, 12,06. Finally, we talk about Fender's pedals, the history, and Stan's work building and developing new pedals, including Fender's new pedal line, the Hammertone. And Stan describes in detail the four game pedals of the Hammertone line, and we talk about Stan's amps, guitars, and pedals. You can find out more about Fender's pedal line at Fender.com, more specifically at F-E-N-D-E-R.com backslash E-N-U-S backslash E-F-F-E-C-T-S dash pedals. And of course, you can find out all about Fender at Fender.com. That's F-E-N-D-E-R.com. Please like, comment, and most of all, share this podcast. I'd really appreciate it. And please support Vintage Guitar Magazine and all the wonderful things they do for us guitar players because they do so many wonderful things for us guitar players. Here's Stan. Hi, Stan. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. How are you doing? Good, thanks. (laughs) Awesome. How long have you worked at at Fender's R&D department? So I started at Fender 16 years ago. Okay. And I came in as a director in the R&D group. And for people don't don't know, R&D is research and development. And those are the folks that do all the designs, all yeah. the technical design, drawings, that kind of stuff. So I started on the electronics side, um, working with the team that was doing guitar amps and pro audio. Okay. Yeah. But very good. And uh, so, and where did you work before, before Fender? Uh, before Fender, I worked at... Uh, a company called Avid that had a subsidiary at the time called DigiDesign. Okay. And DigiDesign are the makers of Pro Tools. Yes, of course. Yes, very so, famous. And, and what was your role there? Uh, there I worked in uh, product marketing, and I was a product designer and developer. Um, one of the bigger things I worked on was a console called Icon. That was one of the best-selling large-format digital consoles for a while. Wow. Um, but I most mostly just worked on Pro Tools, some of the features, and a lot of the hardware for it. And and your background before that, where... Uh, yeah, so let's see. Uh, my dad was an engineer in Silicon Valley in kind of the classic Silicon Valley days, worked for a bunch of the companies, Fairchild, Signetics, GE, people like that. Sure. Um, my mom and my dad were both musicians. So growing up, I had music and electronics and not a thing else. I can't cook. I, can't, I don't know about art. I'm just like, I have those two things and that's it. Yep. Um, in my 20s, I spent a lot of time... Uh, in my teens, I started working at music stores, and I started doing like repairs and amp mods and things like that. Wow. And what uh, music stores, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, yeah. So in the Bay Area, in the South Bay, so the San Francisco Bay Area, in the South Bay, there was a store called Hal's Music in the mid-70s in Mountain View. Okay. And that kind of splintered off and became a store called Red's Guitar Warehouse. Okay. 
And uh, both of these are really fairly small stores. Uh, Red's was kind of fun because a guy called Bruce Zinke came through. He was a teenager that kind of popped through the shop every now and then. Um, and he went on to become Zinke that did the Smoky Amps, sure. worked at Fender for a long time, did the Viber King design, did that kind of stuff. So he started, I gave my repair business to him when I left and started working at recording studios. Okay. So I spent my 20s engineering a lot and working in studios. I moved to LA kind of in my early 30s. And that got me in touch with the guys from Neve who offered me a job. So I worked for Neve for oh, four wow. or five years, lived in the UK, worked in R&D there. Uh-huh. Uh, moved it's, back it's to the Rupert, States. Rupert Neve. Yeah, right, 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 right. right. And although, although this was AMS Neve, so this was the AMS company that had bought Neve at okay. that point. Rupert had been gone since like 1973 or something. Oh, wow. I think he was around for a really long time. Uh-huh. But uh, worked there for a while uh, and then came back to the States, worked at a company called Harrison, which was a really delightful, great little company, about 65 people in Nashville, just oh, outside wow. of Nashville. And they do big film consoles. So, you know, consoles with 700 channels, that wow. kind of stuff for film mixing. Wow. So from there, I went to DigiDesign and uh, worked on Pro Tools for a while. I've been working on guitar amps and designing and building since I was a teenager, but Fender was actually my first kind of MI industry job. Okay. Wow. So, and the app, did you, you built the amps? Any, yeah. Any, under what moniker? Oh, so uh, I did a lot of mods. I never really did a brand. I didn't do like a boutique business or something, but I did a lot of amp mods for people. Um, I think I was one of the earlier guys doing some of that stuff. Uh, Certainly, I mean, I was, I was, had a whole line of stuff that I was working on towards the end of the 70s. Yeah. Um, Did you study electrical? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Please go ahead. I was just going to ask if you studied electrical engineering in school. Yeah, not, not in a formal way. So I don't have a degree. Okay. But I've had a lifelong passion for it, and I've studied across the whole of my life, and I still study. So I still read a lot. I still kind of hone my chops a lot. Um, you know, again, those two things, music and electronics, and I go as deep as I can on both of them. Sure. So I had always had a strong sense of curiosity with electronics, where if I'd get a hold of a thread of something, I'd be like, well, why does that happen? Well, why did that happen? Well, what's the thing behind that? So I would continue to study, and I've got a whole shelf of technical books back there that I still kind of poke my nose into. Right on. All right technical on. books cost $100 or more. That's the kind of the rule, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> like Jack Dar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so for me, I've just kind of had this lifelong love of this stuff. Uh-huh. And, uh, and when I was doing school, it was more on the reading, writing, arithmetic, um, side of things, and I didn't focus or specialize, and I was still pretty torn between music and electronics, and I still do a lot of music as well, so they both are pretty constant companions. Playing guitar, or what, what, what do you play? Yeah, I play uh, guitar. I have a studio. Um, I have a bunch of keyboards oh, wow. also. There's a pretty <laughs> giant modular synth not far from here. There's a bunch of outboard gear. There's wow. a bunch of guitar amps. There's a whole wall of guitars, so I have a bunch of, um, a bunch of music projects I work on. Um, I, I get to play a guitar for the Pokemon franchise. A dear friend is the wow. main composer for Pokemon. So yeah. I get to play guitar and like the fil- feature films and the episodic work and stuff. So I do some studio playing a little bit here and there as well. Wow. As time allows. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. Next to me, the room that we're in is kind of a studio slash office room. Next to me is a full shop. Uh-huh. And okay. so there's like parts bins and test equipment and workbenches and mechanical tools and all kinds of stuff out there. And you, you work out of your house? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, for the most part. I, I, I have a. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. It's fun. Um, uh, there's no off switch, so but that's that's okay too. Um, a lot of times, you know, stuff happens at any any old given hour, so it sure. could be a two in the morning thing or something. And so it's nice to be able to just kind of 
pad out to the shop and work on something. <laughs> That's fantastic. The yeah. and uh, when if you don't generally, where is your house located? Oh yeah, uh, Los Angeles. Okay. So and we're in Burbank. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so our head, headquarters are in Hollywood, and our our main factory is in Corona. So yeah. and I spend about a day a week at the factory. Okay. Just checking on on uh, quality control and stuff like that, or well, or yeah, pitch, my current job. Designs. <laughs> all this pedal nonsense is all a sideline for me currently. I have a, <laughs> my current job is I uh, work in the guitar research and development group, so oh, I manage wow. that group. Okay. And the the home of that group is in Corona. Okay. So there's a bunch of people I work with there, and my whole focus is on the guitar side of our business now. But pedals, we started the pedal project as kind of a moonlighting thing because there was a need. And we didn't have a resource for it. And I just kind of threw my hat in the ring. I was, when I do purely managerial work, I get bored pretty quick. So I always look for things that I can do design-wise. Yeah. Um, I've worked on a bunch of our artist amps, and that's always how those things start. Oh, like wow. I did our very first artist amp, which was the Eric Clapton Twin. I got uh-huh. to work on that with him, and that was purely because I was bored as a manager. And I talked to our A&R guy and said, you know, what's he want to do? And yeah. I built him an amp in my garage. Wow. The same thing happened with Mike Landau. The same thing happened with Joe Bonamassa. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and, who is an amazing person, by the way. Yeah. Um, and now twice with Joe. Um, so all of those kinds of things all happen a little bit on the side. They're, you know, I, I put time and focus into them, but it's not like a main business drive for me. Yeah. The, and, well, they're, they're, the Fender people are probably going to be unhappy that you just called their pedals nonsense. But the- <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, so from my perspective, I think they're really cool. Um, I can't take anything too seriously. Um, you know, I have to kind of poke a little bit of fun at myself here and there. I sure. think we did a pretty decently impressive thing. I think we started around 2018, and we've come up with almost 40 pedals in that main pedal line. Yeah. Um, and I did probably the, the bulk electronic design forum, although we worked with other people like my dear friend Bruce Agnator and people like that would come in and help with some stuff from time to time. Okay. But for the most part, it was a lot of work. And... Um, I try to sometimes trivialize the amount of work, you know, just conversationally, uh-huh. um, just to kind of make it not such a big deal. But but it was truly a colossal amount of work in just a couple of years time. Oh, I can only imagine. So, yeah, <laughs> not nonsense at all, actually. Yeah. Before, but before we get into the pedals, though, so the the amps are. Is there? A, I assume they're all point to point. The artist amps. Um, yeah, generally speaking. So the Mike Landau amp was a modification of the hot rod. Uh-huh. It was kind of a focusing of the hot rod. He wasn't into the overdrive section, okay. so we got to remove that entirely. We kind of fine-tuned the phase inverter. Um, I say we, I mean I. Yeah. Um, and yeah. kind of uh, gave the power up a little bit more headroom because he was mostly kind of developing tone from like starting from pedals and then using the amp for just a little bit of color. But what he wanted was loud, clean headroom. Yeah. So I moved the feature set of the amp around to give it two clean channels and a mid-boost instead okay. of a clean overdrive. Um, so that, that amp is still the same kind of construction, which is PCB construction. Yeah. Yeah. The stuff yeah. with Joe um, is very much a you know, turret board style in the classic way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the same thing with the Clapton amp. Um, so, yeah, those things are... And, and do you have yeah. access to the, like, the original amps that they, that they were using to model them off of? Or... Super fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Joe especially is a completely wonderful human being. I like him really a lot. Get along with him really well. Know him pretty well now. And he's extremely uh, generous. He has a 48 Dual Pro that he got that's in just almost mint condition. And the thing that was staggering about it was it had most of the original resistors and caps and tubes, and it worked like a new amp. 
Okay. And that's pretty unheard of because, you know, caps get leaky over time sure, and resistance change value and yeah. things, you know, thermal time constants come into play. And uh, this amp, for whatever reason, held in there just fantastically well. And it's 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 one of my favorite playing experiences I've ever played of getting to know that amp. Uh-huh. Um, he he sent it home with me and I had the thing for like a year and a bit or wow. something. Just being able to really kind of exhaustively and he was never like, Hey man, how's my amp? You know, it's yeah. like he's just very relaxed and cool. So um yeah, I got to spend a lot of time with that. When I worked with uh, Michael Landau, who I also really, really like a lot, um I got to spend a good amount of time with him and kind of talk with him and see what he was going after. Yeah. So you kind of get to form a relationship. I've made some really nice friendships out of, out of some of this stuff. Yeah. That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. And behind you there, what kind of amps do you have at your own amps? Oh, okay. So there's a bunch of things that I made back there. Um, there's a, there's an early seventies sound city amp, which is kind of one of the Dave Reeves sort of high spin spinoff things yeah, that I like. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a amp that I made that I named after my daughter. Uh, there's a, kit amp that i put together that i totally modified there's a crazy old mesa underneath it there's a 65 like a 1965 deluxe reverb uh Uh, there's one of bruce zinke's first heads that he made um and there's probably another 20 amps out in the room next door (laughs) so i swap things out i might i might have a little amp problem Uh, i've got a bunch of fender tweed stuff i've got one of the joe twins i've got an old tweed deluxe i've got an old tweed bandmaster um i use my 65 uh blackface deluxe a lot uh and did did you get those amps a, a, a while back or recently some of them I've had for a really long time. Yeah, some of these things I've had for decades. Okay, so uh, um, what, my question really is: Did your amp problem start way back when you were first tinkering on amps? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's and it's been um, an accumulation. So I've been a long, long, long time reader of Vintage Guitar Magazine, and I don't have a staggering vintage collection, but I do have a few things floating around. Okay. Um, and always, I don't think of it as a collection as much as I think of it as an accumulation. And because I'm a working player. And all my stuff kind of works for a living. I don't have like the perfect burst sitting in a closet. Yeah. Um, so I have a bunch of kind of working class tools, but they're all things that have kind of adhered themselves along the way. And so now you just drag this bigger and bigger accumulation through life. Okay. <laughs> and then when you're working on stuff like Pokemon, when you're playing guitar parts, are you using plugins or are you using actual live amps? I always use amps all right, and all right. cabinets and mics whenever I can. Yeah. Um, I always try for um, the kind of the highest quality result. I can get. Yeah. The only thing about working on Pokemon stuff is sometimes you'll play a cue and then they'll come back with notes and uh-huh. then they want like the exact same sound, but they want you know, a different emphasis on something or sure. a different tone color or whatever. Oh yeah. And so you have to be able to kind of recreate the setup. So I, what I tend to do is I tend to set up lots of little recording setups along the way. And then I wait after uh-huh. I finish the cues and then I wait and get comments back and then I'll do whatever I need to correct and then tear everything down. <laughs> Very good. The, and the, so currently you're you're working with the guitar R and D um, department. Yeah, yeah. And and what kind of things are you working on there? Okay, so that is that group manages that does the design work for all Fender electric guitars, uh-huh. uh, and some of the acoustic stuff as well. Okay. Um, and so that's just a, a pool of engineers and drafting people, um, people that help kind of coordinate the thing, project managers, that sort of deal. And so the the product team will architect what they want the product line to be going forward. Okay. They'll write out a product spec that will be the, you know, it's this kind of bridge, it's those kinds of pickups, it's this radius, it's this scale length or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, my group will take that information and start turning it into drawings oh, wow. and 
builds the material and will build prototypes. We have a really, really great uh, model shop that has a, a full CNC and some extremely talented builders in it. And so I feel like we can build anything. Yeah. And, and do you so work, we'll build prototypes. Do, do that, sorry? sorry for interrupting again. That, yes. Do they, so is it the custom shop people that will put those guitars together or is it a whole different team? It's a whole different team. The custom shop is really its own organization, and those guys are really special, uh-huh. and they're kind of sequestered. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's almost a different culture in a way. It's a really, really neat organization. It's really, really fun. Um, the group that I work with are kind of Navy SEALs of builders. They're okay. extremely <laughs> capable. They're also extremely technical. Okay. And um, so they, they speak you know, um, CAD drawings fluently and CNC programming, but they also build stuff by hand. And, and, you know, their, their motto is they basically just get the job done, whatever they need to do to do it. Sure. We try to turn stuff out that's manufacturing friendly. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's from our group. It has to trans transition over into the factory. Uh-huh. So we, we don't have the luxury of being able to build something once by hand perfectly and then hand it off. We have to build it in a way that is repeatable and manufacturable. Sure. Exactly. You have to hand off yeah. the computer program. Yeah, and yeah. The two of somebody who can run it, and and is the the do you work direct? So do you have to? Sorry, as I slow down yeah. here, I have so many questions. The yeah, do you have to go out of the country to to watch some of these things in operation when they're being built, or or well, yeah, a lot of our production happens in Corona. We have a decent sized factory in Ensenada as well. Uh-huh. Um, I haven't been to the Ensenada factory in a few years, but I used to go pretty regularly uh-huh. um we have uh, the, the staff that we have the crew we have is really great and so i don't feel like i have to kind of micromanage or get down at kind of the lowest levels i think it's a pretty well-oiled machine and yeah. knows what it needs to do and the parts of it just function how it needs to function uh-huh. um so i do spend time in production in our corona factory sure um and it's interesting because you know you think about okay we'll turn over drawings or machine programs or whatever uh, last time I checked, there's still like 140 operations on your basic Stratocaster that get done by hand. Oh, wow. So a lot of like sanding and shaping and buffing and polishing and frets and a lot of things that get done. You know, I think people imagine it's a factory and, you know, you pull the lever and a Stratocaster pops out. Yeah. But in reality, we use CNCs to cut the neck and bodies. But even then, there's a lot of hand shaping that goes into it. Oh, of course, it. yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. so moving forward... With the yeah. with the guitar project, what kind of what kind of things are you? What can you say? What kind of things you're working on? Oh, yeah, the company's a little iffy about that. We always have things like on the roadmap. Uh-huh. There's always evolutions of products. I think if you look, you know, if you kind of blur your eyes and step back, you can see Fender has a combination of um, sort of time honored stuff that we do over and over. Like there's always like an American Professional or American Standard or whatever. There's something yeah. in that kind of product line. We generally try to hit things that are a little closer to the vintage mark. Yeah. And so, you know, American Originals or American Vintage or whatever, those kinds of things. So it's like we always kind of further those product lines. Uh-huh. We're always playing around with as many different price points as we can get to. And we're always trying to push the envelope on what we can do at lower price points and higher quality levels. Yeah. yeah. So stuff like that. But it's just it's kind of just more the normal flow of products from the product team. Is, is there many uh, design changes that happen with the American Standard or... Or is it is that once it's done, it's set in stone? Or well, there there are improvements, but the improvements get to be harder and harder to make. You okay. know, and a lot of times it's things like improving processes so that frets feel better, or okay. setups are better, things like that. Over time, um, we have an expression we use a lot where we talk about golden handcuffs. Where I think if you look <laughs> at 
Um, some amount of our consumers really want us to make things just exactly how Leo would have made them in the 50s or 60s. Yeah. And a large part of us really, a bunch of us, like I'm, an, I'm a longtime player. I almost said older guy, but longtime player. <laughs> and I, too, really love that aesthetic. I love the guitars of the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Um, and so it, it warms my heart when we do things as close to the right way that, that we can. When yeah. we try to get as close as we can to what was really going on. Um, that makes me really happy. Um, we we do still try to push the envelope, um, and but we have I think limits on how far we can push the envelope. I don't think you know you're going to see Fender do a Steinberger type instrument or something like that because I don't think our consumers would really have it. Yeah. I think they really like yeah. their Strats and Tellys to be Strats and Tellys. Exactly. So, so we have this sense of we have to kind of curate. And take care of the past. We have to be responsible to the past. We have to try to find a way to look forward. We've got to do new things. We have to embrace new manufacturing methods. We have to certainly dealing with new regulatory stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like it pushes you in in directions. But I think we still try to stay true to who we are. Yeah, and and apart from from the aesthetics, are what's the biggest uh, what what's the biggest similarity from a, a Strat that was that's being or a Telecaster, for instance, being built today to one that was built in, in Leo's era. Yeah. I'm always staggered. Uh, you know, you see there, there are black and white films you can see of people working in the, uh, the Fullerton building in the fifties. Sure. Yeah. And you see, you know, shirtless guy, grab a, a spread and walk over to a bandsaw and whip it around and ta-da, it's a Stratocaster. Yeah. And I didn't see a template. I didn't see a routing guide. I didn't see anything. He just walked over to the bandsaw and, popped out with a Stratocaster body. So I'm always amazed at how consistent the instruments from the 50s and the 60s were given the way that they were put together. Uh-huh. I think the people that worked on them were craftspeople. They did it many, many, many times a day, so they had a good sense of what they were doing. They knew their jobs. They were competent at it, but there was no overarching thing that forced it into a, a, you know the realm of precision. So I think one of the biggest differences now with CNC's I think we can be extremely precise and, and repeatable. So I think things like neck pockets and things like that, we can be pretty tight on. Um, certainly contours, um, you know, that kind of stuff, we can control much better than we ever could in the past, I think. So yeah. that's that's one of the big differences. As far as things like pickups and stuff, we still wind them the same way. We still use the same materials. We still use, you know, CTS pots and things like that. So we still try to stay pretty, pretty close and true to what was going on. Uh-huh. Yeah. And do you interact with the custom shop at all or, or not so much? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I've done a bunch of crazy, um, once again, side projects with some of the builders where we'll incorporate um, fun electronics and like one off instruments. And so I've kind of helped some of those guys with that stuff. I always welcome those opportunities because I love those builders. Some of those guys are so talented uh-huh. and just they just do brutally, brutally great work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, the guy that runs the custom shop, I'm pretty good friends with. Um, so yeah, I like that crew a lot. Okay. Very good. And what do you have at, at your home? What do you have as far as guitars? Oh gosh. Well, speaking of the custom shop, I got this little guy. Oh wow. This is a 64 and it's a relic as you can see. Um, it's a lot of fun. I put wide range humbuckers in it Yeah. and these are our new wide range, um, humbuckers, which are, we went and recreated the magnet formula, the Cunefe magnets from the seventies, which had been gone since the seventies. Okay. So these are built like, wound like, same materials as the '70s pickups, and sound a lot like that. And, and uh, I love these pickups. So um, I've got a handful of uh, Fender things. I've got some old vintage stuff, like I've got a couple old Rickenbackers and a couple old Gretches. I've got, you know, uh, no Gibsons. 
Uh, I might have a few. <laughs> I'm only kidding. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, so when you, you mentioned the magnets were out, out of out of uh, stock from the 70s, yeah. how, how do you recreate it? How would you go about recreating a magnet like that? Yeah, it, 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 there's, it's, a, it's tricky. The magnet, the original material, Kunafe, uh, was used in automobile speedometers, mechanical automobile speedometers. And when the auto industry moved away in, into digital speedometers, all of a sudden the market for Kunafe magnets stopped. The market entirely was automobile uh-huh. and Seth Lover when he was at Fender. Okay. And, and so as soon as the automobile market went away, we stopped being able to get the magnets. So all of the wide range pickups since then have been humbuckings, but not built in the, you know, the, the wide range doesn't have a magnet underneath the coils. The slugs in the pickup are the actual magnets. Okay. And they're made from this cool magnetized material. Um, so, the the magnets themselves don't have a lot of strength, so you've got to use a lot of turns. Sure. And the fact that the magnet's in the middle of the coil rather than under the coil helps you. So the magnet coil tends to be a little flatter, but also a little wider, a little bigger. Okay. Um, so uh, there are magnet suppliers in the world, and so we just picked a magnet supplier and worked with them to reestablish the chemistry. Okay. And then we went through a gazillion prototypes and listened to a bunch of things. Um, we're fortunate. We have Tim Shaw... Um, with us, who does a lot of our pickup development, and Tim is a longtime pickup guy. Um, worked at Gibson in the you know late seventies, early eighties, okay. uh, and did a bunch of like kind of the recreation. The first maybe good recreation of the PAF that they had done, I think, was under Tim's watch. Okay. Um, and so now, all these years later, Tim's been at Fender for a really long time, and he just knows everything about pickups. It's great. So he was pretty heavily involved in the recreation. Um, and we got a bunch of prototypes and listened to a bunch of things and compared them to originals and uh-huh. kind of went around the block and and uh, I really like the results. Okay, great. You mentioned uh, the Rickenbacker. So, what when you're recording the, for the Pokemon stuff? Sorry to go back to that. Yeah. Did you? Did, what kind of guitars are you using for that? Are you using mostly Fenders? Or are you using whatever you got? A, what a, whatever the queue calls for. Okay. So a lot of times for me, like Stratocasters, if you send me to a desert island and you go take only one guitar, that one guitar will be a Telecaster. Oh, yes. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I definitely yeah. am the believe, a believer in the, it's all the sounds you need, none of the things you don't. You know, it's very focused and concentrated. It's a really simple but powerful tool. Sure. Um, so that figures in really heavily. Strats are, are one of those things that those sounds are completely unique in their own universe. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and so a yeah, cue sheet, what's the cue sheet look like when you get it? Oh, so sometimes, um, a lot of times, I'll, the composer I work with is a super crazy skilled keyboard player and knows uh, can play guitar and knows enough t- to play guitar to be kind of dangerous. Okay. And so he'll use samples, and a lot of times he'll mock up a guitar part. Oh, wow. And then he'll send it to me, and then I'll have to listen to his guitar part and transcribe it and work out how to play it. And he'll always go, you know, yeah, my parts are playable because I know the mechanics of guitar and how it works. And I go, okay, great. But a lot of times it's like one finger goes there and one finger goes like eight miles away and one finger goes. Um, So we kind of work to try to rationalize the voicings a little bit sometimes. Sometimes I'll tear things apart and play it on two tracks and get part of it on one track and part of it on another track. Yep. I mean, anything that gets you across the finish line is okay. Um, Very, not very often written out. And I'll make notes or I'll write charts or sometimes I'll write... It's something automatically. If I need to remember something complicated, uh-huh. I'm not a great reader. So okay. if I'm writing something out, it's only in kind of a rough shape so that I can get a sense of roughly where it's going. Yeah. 
Did you play in bands in high school and, and after oh, yeah. high school? Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I had, a, you know, uh, as a lot of people did, I had a little bit of a thing in the 80s and played in a band that had a couple of records and toured around a little bit and played. And um, Who was that? So, yeah. Uh, that was a band called Giraffe. Oh, of course. And, oh. yeah, and the guy, the main guy from that was a guy called Kevin Gilbert who went on to work with Sheryl Crow and, yeah. and did a record called Toy Matinee that's still one of my favorite, favorite records. I'm familiar with the record. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So where did you pick up guitar? Your parents were musical, but the, did they teach you or did you study? Um, both. So my mom, um, I, in fact, I have my mom's guitar sitting down the hallway here, which is, so that guitar has been in my life for the entirety of my life. Um, I just, every, every minute of the day was filled with music at home and guitar playing was a thing that was just kind of always constantly around. Uh-huh. So I started playing when I was seven. I was pretty serious about it pretty instantly. Um, I didn't start playing in band contexts. I played a lot of acoustic. I played a lot of bluegrass. My mom listened to a lot of um, traditional blues. Okay. And so we had a lot of like Lightning Hopkins and we wow. had some mini Riverton. We had a lot of stuff like that. That was that was the music I grew up with. I didn't grow up with like, you know, pop music on the radio. Uh-huh. Um, my dad is a crazy jazz aficionado. So for him, music started and ended in the 20s. Uh-huh. And he's a huge Jelly Roll Morton fan, kind of the music that like preceded um, jazz yeah. and the roots of that stuff. So, um, you know, twenties jazz. Yeah. 20, 20, up to 29 and then stop. Um, and yeah, like, like you go, dad, string of pearls, swing, big band, whatever. Nope. Yawn, whatever. (laughs) Um, so always music around a lot of guitar. My dad was interesting in that he, um, took a lot of, he took a lot of music theory in college because I think he was interested in it. And so he was a guy who could play guitar, but he could also play piano, but he could play trombone really well wow. and flugelhorn and trumpet and coronet and um, saxophone and a little bit of clarinet. And it was, just, it was just surprising that he could just get things to musically occur. I always think of myself as like a pale dotted outline of his shadow because he was much more intense as an engineer. And I think, you know, oh, really? certainly, yeah, more theoretical than me from a musical standpoint. Um, but yeah, so I just started playing guitar and started playing in bands as a teenager, as one does. And, um, th- and then I kind of split my time in my 20s between recording and playing. Uh-huh. And then in my 30s, when I started working for uh, more like companies, I still played music a lot. I lived in Nashville when I was working with Harrison, which was a really wonderful place for me. It was great. And I played a lot, a lot. Um, so, yeah, I've always, always been musical. I still kind of play in bands. I still record. Um, yeah. I have a partner. We just, just put a record out two days ago. So what, What's it called? Um, it's called 1206, 12 colon 06. And you can find it on pretty much most of the streaming music types of places so you know spotify i think and apple music and amazon and and stuff so uh and it's a very much it's a kind of a rock uh influenced thing there's some orchestral stuff on it there's wow. um yeah it's, it's it's fun there's a couple of instrumental things uh, did so you, yeah did you record it right there in your studio yeah oh. yeah so the drums were done half the drums were done in recording studios half the drums were done in a big warehouse uh, my partner Dennis was the singer and bass player, so he recorded his stuff at home. And then everything else, keyboards, guitars, um, all the other overdub orchestral stuff was done here. I mixed it here. Uh-huh. Uh, and then uh, my friend Ken Porter mastered it. Okay. Wow. <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, fun. Well, we'll see. There's no way to make money in music right now that I can think of. It. And so there's no intention to that at all. But it's uh-huh. just one of those things you got to do because you got to do it. Yep. Now, I suppose we should talk about the pedals. How early did Fender start making pedals? Do you know? 
Um, I don't know exactly the earliest, but I know we were doing stuff in the 60s. Okay. Um, I don't know if we had anything. We might have had a volume pedal or something earlier than that. Um, but we did like a volume pedal and then a crazy volume tone pedal where the pedal had two axes that it would work on. Wow. Um, but like certainly, you know, fender blenders started appearing towards the end of the 60s. Uh-huh. Um, and then in the 70s, there was a, a tape delay that came out and then a few things along the way. And then the 80s started and there were pedals like, you know, the flangers and things like that that started popping in. Um, I think a lot of times, a lot of those things were rebranded stuff. I think in a lot of that era, like especially the 80s stuff and onward, a lot of times you'd find like we would work with some uh, manufacturer that would make stuff and we would just kind of brand it Fender and throw it out there. Okay. And largely that was the case. We did a few unique things. Um, I got to work with one of our engineers on a pedal called the Sublime, which was a cool bass distortion pedal that we did around 2007. Okay. And its cool claim to fame was that it used a crossover, so it split off the fundamental frequencies and it kept them clean, and then it took the high-frequency output of the crossover and ran it through a distortion. So that oh, when you kept the distortion on, you kept all the low end of the bass. Yeah, yeah. So we did that. We did a, th- a pedal called the Runaway that got a little bit of um, an underground success that was a... Um, a we worked with a company called SoftTube that had an acoustic feedback algorithm. And so we incorporated that into a chunk of DSP in a treadle and had a, feed, a pedal that could do artificial feedback, but at no volume. So <laughs> that was fun. We did that in the early kind of 2000s-ish okay. timeline. Um, we had gone through a lot of exercises of just rebranding stuff. And that sort of seemed to be, you know, we pay a lot of attention to our guitars and a lot of attention to our amps. And yeah. the product yeah. guys, the product people, um, I like working with them a lot. Those those people are extremely detail oriented, and when you're talking about you know t- minute details, you know the, the radius of a oval head on a neck plate screw or something like that. You know the the product people get really um, focused and in depth on that stuff, which is great. I think from the consumer standpoint, to care a lot about that is a really wonderful thing. Oh, yeah. The guys that work on the amps are exactly the same. They really completely care about how it sounds, how it behaves, how it looks, sure. tiny, tiny little cosmetic details. Um, I think we feel like we have this weight of history that we're carrying around and we want to make sure not to drop it. Absolutely. So, a legacy, a, a legacy of, of, of yeah. products that seek, everybody seeks out. Yeah, and Fender's been really fortunate. We've had employees that have been here like 60 years, 60 plus years. Wow. Um, and, and so there's been a really long, continued kind of lineage. I know people sometimes go back and forth about, well, it's not the real Fender. But we have people that stretch back in time. And there's been a, a definitely a continuous lineage of people that work on the products. Uh-huh. So um, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of 20 and 30 and 40-year veterans floating around this place. Okay. Um, so... It's surprising when you get to the pedals and it's like, yeah, we'll just rebrand something and it's fine. Um, and we did that a fair amount. Uh, our CEO, Andy, um, he's been around seven years. He's, I think he's the fifth CEO I've worked with and he is by far my favorite. He okay. is completely great. Um, Andy got us talking about pedals and wanted to kind of push into the pedal space and we wanted to do it in a unique way. Um, and so not... You know, do something where we could start to kind of carry some history around with pedals as well. Uh-huh. So um, around 2017, I started on the first series of pedals, and we did six of them. That I think we had them at NAM, the 2018 NAM show. Okay. Um, and that that series of pedals went together really quickly. Like the design and execution of those was done in like 10 months or 11 months or something, start to finish, which is super fast for a project, let alone six projects. Yes. Um, 
And then we just continued to build that line out. The idea was we didn't want to do um, our version of the green overdrive or whatever. We wanted sure. to try to make the designs be completely unique, completely yep. our own thing, um, and not borrow from anybody else's stuff. So we missed a bunch of opportunities because we didn't have a green overdrive like pedal. You know, yeah. we had to kind of convince people that what we were doing had some merit on its own. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so it's just been a, a continuation of that. Yeah. Um, very good, and and so the hammer tone is the is the latest. Yeah, that first pedal line. So I've got one in my hand, and of course our re, our listeners can see, see the stunning detail. <laughs> it's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> this is a Lost Highway phaser that I'm holding, and it and it was a, it's a decently complicated pedal. It has a couple of different phasing modes, and it has two different speeds and depths, and wow. you can toggle wow. between them, and it speeds up and slows down like a Leslie. But even cooler, it has this feature where it can pay attention to your guitar playing. And if you dig into it, it'll speed up. And then when you play a little bit quieter, it'll slow down. So it can kind of be dynamic wow. and track your playing, which is fun. And we did this feature on a pedal that does like rotary speakers. And we did one on a, on a chorus vibrato as well. Okay. And they're really fun. But as you can see, it's a little bit of a knob and a switch and an LED fest. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's what, seven, seven knobs. Seven knobs and and two foot switches and, and two five LEDs. And, yeah. 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 So... <laughs> When we did that series of pedals, kind of the intent was we we didn't I didn't feel like we had the right to come in and go we're selling five or six hundred dollar pedals because we're Fender. I didn't feel like we had permission to do that at that point. Uh -huh. so we were aiming for kind of a high end pedal experience, and we were trying to kind of squarely price it in the middle ground. Um, but for me at the time, aiming it at a high end pedal experience meant giving it some features and giving it some ability to be a sandbox and play. Sure. Um, what I wasn't great at recognizing at the time and that Andy was really great at recognizing that was that we have consumers that are like starting out beginning eight-year-olds in the music store for the first time, yeah. all the way up to people that have been playing for 50 years that have, you know, decently complicated setups yep. and kind of all points in between. And so when we did the hammer tones, we, there were a couple things we wanted to try to do. We, want, we wanted to try to get a little more aggressive price point wise, but more than that, way more than that, we wanted to make them more accessible. And so we were trying to come up with pedals that were um, easy to use for a beginner, but also quality and, and basic and simple and easy to find your way around if you're a pro. Uh -huh. So very much it was an idea of kind of simplifying uh, where we'd been before. You know, before it was boxes of lots and lots and lots of sounds, and the uh -huh. hammer tones were really meant to focus a little bit more and be a little more approachable. And that's why there's uh, four uh, different uh, gain or distortion type pedals. Yeah, and and are they yeah. are those so are those like is there a is the basic gain pedal is that is that the the least amount of distortion all the way to the metal which is the most amount of distortion is that how that works or kind of it's it's a little more about the texture so the four okay. are uh, there's the overdrive and um, earlier I said that we didn't have our version of the green overdrive and we resisted doing that for a really long time uh, that pedal is such a unique design and it uh, it has developed such a large following and of course a lot of people have done variations and tweaks or repackaging or whatever and they call it their own product and yeah. that that circuit design ends up being in a lot of things um that circuit does a really cool thing where it distorts the guitar signal but it also leaks a clean version of it through at the same time so you get this blend so when you play you get the full dynamic pick attack of the clean signal that you hear, and that pick attack pops up above the level of the distortion briefly, and then it kind of settles down, and then you hear kind of the crunch from the distortion circuit. Yep. Pedals that are distortion circuits 
uh, don't typically do that. They, they tend to flatten the sound and it gets compressed and, and, and gets lovely and lush, but you lose a lot of times the, the articulation or the pick attack. Uh. Um, so I wanted to try to approach that circuit. The first time I tried to do that was with our pedal called the Pugilist. And the Pugilist's thing was it actually has two distortion circuits that work in parallel, and you can make one of them very, very clean. Yeah. And at that point, you can control the blend between the clean and dirty, or you can make one super dirty and one kind of dirty and still get some articulation. Okay, that's still a knob fest. That thing had like eight knobs on it. Yes, uh, uh, nine. Not, okay, so oh, well, when that's we went the, to... That's the dual Pugilist. The dual, yeah, the dual got even more crazy. <laughs> so the, just the regular Pugilist, it, I think it, it's like seven or eight. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> when we did these, um, I wanted to go back and re kind of examine the green overdrive thing because I do like the idea. One, it's kind of a time honored sound. Um, and I do like the idea of having the clean signal kind of present. So if you blur your eyes and you stand way, 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 way back, you can see a tiny little shard of the circuit that looks a little, um, which, and that part of it is how the diodes wrap around the op amp. Um, but the rest of that circuit is pretty unique. Um, so the things that differentiate it, it has this kind of fun mid-boost up in front where you can get more gain in mid-range frequencies. Okay. Um, it's got a trim pot inside that you can kind of roll off some of the extreme top end if you're playing with an amp that's really bright, like a Fender amp with a bright switch on or a deluxe reverb with a vibrato channel. There's a trim pot that lets you kind of tame some of the fizz. Um, and uh, yeah, and so we're, we're trying to cut. Oh, and there's one other thing. There's one post overdrive stage too, which kind of will take off a little bit of the top part of the peak and kind of compress it a little bit. Okay. So even when we were looking at like the time honored green overdrive circuit, I still wanted to try to take it somewhere unique and somewhere different. Uh-huh. Um, so that pedal kind of gets into lower gain territory up into pretty decently high gain, but it's very much voiced as like a mid range boost kind of meant to go in front of an amp. Um, turn it up. The next thing uh, in line is the distortion pedal. And the distortion and metal pedals are both very related to each other. They're both kind of two-band tone controls with a gain and a, uh-huh. and a level control. Okay. Um, internally, they both have two trim pots. One of them, again, is that kind of high-end fizz control, and one is a mid-range cutter boost control. So uh-huh. you can kind of taper the mid-range a little bit. And they're really easy to get into. There's a thumb screw on the back. You okay. just pop off and there's a couple of trim pots you can get to. Um, those pedals have pretty similar amounts of gain. Actually, the difference is in the texture of the distortion. So the distortion pedal, the distortion's a little bit asymmetrical. And so as you play a little cleaner, when it starts to distort, it starts to distort one peak more than the other. And then okay. as you play harder, it tends to saturate more and it's less obvious. Okay. But definitely the lower gain stuff, it's a little, I don't know, it's like it's a little coarser in texture. It's a, it's, it's a little bit um, more basic or simpler maybe to me. Uh-huh. Uh, the metal version of it is completely symmetrical distortion and so that tends to be a much finer pitched kind of distortion sound okay. um, which can be fizzy but it's it's a lot more consistent um, and so those two are just kind of different textures um, and I, I would tend to think of more one for soloing things and more one for rhythm things maybe Okay. the fuzz is a completely different animal um, <laughs> my favorite pedal to work on in the original lineup was the pelt fuzz um, fuzzes are fun and there's lots and lots of great ones whether it's a fuzz face or a big muff or a you know a, a fox a tone machine which is one of my favorites or a rat or whatever yeah there's lots and lots of different variations out there fender did a cool fuzz uh, we did a fuzz wah volume pedal and again it probably would have been the early 70s and the core of that fuzz is really interesting it's a pair of silicon transistors that are horribly biased 
but pretty repeatable. Um, and so I borrowed the core of that when I did the pelt, and then I added some extra features to it, like a mid-booster cut, okay. and then uh, a switch to kind of um, control the amount of low-end woof at the front of the pedal. And then also there was a knob called Bloom that controlled the hardness of the attack of the note. So how much of the note would get splatty or, or spitty or whether it would just kind of softly roll in. Wow. Um, the core, it was super fun to do. Uh, I think it turned out pretty well. The pelt fuzz uses that same, sorry, the hammer tone fuzz uses that yeah. same core. And so, but it's a little bit of a simplified feature set. And again, it's got an internal trim pot for, for the um, top high-end roll-off. Okay. Um, but it's its own thing. It, it kind of relates to the Fender Fuzzwaff Fuzz a tiny little bit, but then nothing else. It's just kind of its own unique thing. And, and why not put the, the internal pots on the outside? Right. The form factor. So one of the criticisms we got when we did the first series of pedals was side jacks. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm not a lover of side jacks either. Um, I really like top jacks because you can put pedals more closely together. Sure. And yeah. so when we looked at the hammer tone line, um, we wanted to do top jacks for the adapter as well as the audio connections okay. to be able to keep the form factor small. Yep. And so part of the thing with the controls was we're trying to keep a small physical size, but also part of it was trying to keep it like clear f- from a mental space perspective. Oh, yeah. So I just didn't want to present so much of a user interface that somebody would ever look at it and not immediately know what was going on. Yeah. Yep. And again, I was trying to um, appeal to like the 8 and 10-year-olds and, and or their parents um, and not have something that would be super intimidating. So, yeah. you know, like in the heat of battle for a, a wizened person playing a gig, I wanted to be able to go, you know, I know where these three knobs do. <laughs> and for a beginner, I didn't want it to be so intimidating. And if the things that we put it in as trim pots, I think, are kind of set and forget. You know, adjust the overall character of the pedal, and then you can just let it be. And then, yeah, exactly. Then you're done. <laughs> yeah. And do you get to name all these pedals? No, no. <laughs> Naming is so hard. We have a crew of people that work on it. Um, you know, you can imagine there are there are trademarks in the world, and we have a really great legal department. Uh-huh. And every time you think of a name, they go, "It's taken." <laughs> and you go, "Oh, well, what about this?" No, it's taken. Wow. So naming is nearly impossible. Um, <laughs> Richard Bussey, who is the category manager, business owner, comes up with a startlingly large number of the names because he's got a wicked sense of humor. Okay, good. And so a lot of times, <laughs> like the the Hammerton pedals, we kept the names pretty straight, like chorus. Yes. Um, but the original series of pedals, you know, where it's like the Pelt or Lost Highway or the Bubbler or whatever, a lot of those, some of those Downtown names came Express. from Richard. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I think actually, I think Downtown Express was one of Richard's names. So, yeah, there's definitely a crew. Um, if, if I make it sound like uh, me and my shop working on stuff all the time, it, it is. But also, there's a giant crew of people that work on this stuff. There's yeah. a the research and development group in our Scottsdale group that are responsible for like the mechanical design and the circuit board design uh-huh. that kind of stuff those guys work on these things a lot the people that work on the industrial design a guy called james gifford and his super talented group of people work on you know how they look and feel and the and the kind of the aesthetic and user experience portion of it yeah. so it's very much a village when you, when you're when you're designing these things do you put it to do you, the is the first inversion something that's all point to point wired and, and yeah generally I'll start with a schematic. I'll generally start just kind of with an idea about what I want to do, and I'll sketch out a schematic, um, and then I'll immediately go to my shop and build it, and I'll build it on perfboard, usually. So let's talk about the type of pedal. Like, this chorus pedal has a DSP in it. So the prototyping of this was me sitting with a development board and a laptop and writing DSP code and listening to it through my Pro Tools system. Oh, wow. 
So that didn't get built on perfboard. But the analog pedals, they'll get built on perfboard first, and I'll listen to it and fine-tune it. Um, the product manager will sometimes come over and listen, and we'll, we'll make comments. Like Richard Bussey came over and would kibitz on stuff. Um, from there, I'll create a schematic and a, and a bill of materials of just the parts that I used for it. And then sometimes I'll have a functional prototype or not, and then I'll hand it off. Um, to the folks that will kind of shepherd it into manufacturing. Okay. And so that's been generally the Scottsdale R&D group, and then they'll work with the factory and work with, you know, getting circuit board layouts done and that kind of stuff. And when the... Some of the pedals... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, some of the pedals are complicated enough, like the Lost Highway um, phaser was too rough to do as a point-to-point build, so I actually laid out PCBs for it and did a, did a short run of prototypes just for things. So sometimes... Um, prototypes will get pretty elaborate sometimes they're like hardly elaborate at all because it's a pretty known thing that the circuit's going to work okay so you just kind of pick and choose how the finished product from from your original design how how close is it how the close sound wise is it audio wise yeah um yeah and that's the thing about the the point to point thing like does it matter does it make a difference i fall down on the side of a well done circuit board layout uh behaves significantly better than a point to point layout Okay. And there are things you can do with a product that's built on a, on a PCB that you can't get away with, uh, you know, won't perform as well in a, in a hand-wired environment. Um, so very much as far as pedals and that kind of form factor goes, um, I'm a fan of PCB stuff. Also, it's super rugged. It's super durable and rigid, and you don't have to worry about you know, mechanical damage or shocks or things like that, yeah. like mechanical shock. Uh-huh. With amps... Um, I like point-to-point amps because I monkey around with stuff so much. I like being able to get in and change sure. things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I do like a lot of larger geometry components. And so I think one of the things that happens with surface mounts is the components shrink really small. And as a result, noise goes up and things change a little bit. Um, I think with when you get into really large geometry components, I think that, and, and certainly, you know, tube amplifiers can have a lot of gain. Um, so I think having, uh, they're, they're, to me... Um, I can kind of see both sides of it in a tube amp. Um, I think the component choice, and by the way, you can put large components on a circuit board and do just fine. Um, uh, so I guess I'm saying I kind of like, I, I like romantically the point-to-point stuff, but I'm perfectly fine and happy with from a quality and a sound quality yeah. point, things being manufactured in a modern way. And you think point-to-point is more roadworthy than... Uh no, I think a good PCB with with you know nicely manufactured and well designed, where it's mechanically supported well, I think that's about as reliable as you can get. Okay. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of the the amps that have been built uh, by hand, hand wired or point to point or whatever, that have been around since the dawn of time, uh, that are still doing well. It's obviously a rugged construction technique, but I don't think the PCB stuff is worse if you're just paying attention to how you're mounting it and what kinds of stresses it's under. Um, Stevie Fryat, who I like a lot, put a disclaimer on his amps on the circuit board that people can find on the internet where he's basically talking about um, the qualities of PCB layout versus hand-wired stuff, and, and I'm, I pretty much agree with him. Yeah, I think Bachner did the same thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, uh, just an aside, does, does Fender make a pedal board that you can mount these pedals on? Yeah, 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 yeah. We have a whole line, and we have a line of power supplies as well called the Engine Room, and uh, so it's a whole ecosystem. Oh, good, good. Yeah. And and your own personal pedal collection, how large is that? Um, let's see. I think I probably have around a hundred pedals. Oh. Um, 
and not a lot. So, I mean, maybe that's a lot. I know uh, my wife probably I'm, thinks that's a lot. For an engineer that works on pedals, that's probably not a lot. Yeah, um, I have some old stuff. Um, you know, I have I have like an original Fox Tone machine that I really like. I have an old Big Muff. I have a. Um, I don't have an old fuzz face, but I have a really special fuzz face that I like a lot. Um, I've got an original early Fender Blender that's a lot of fun to play with. What's um, what, what's special about the fuzz face? Oh, it was put together by a pal who's really, really, really familiar with fuzz face circuits, okay. and he used really particular parts. And okay. So it's a really good one. Um, I have a, a Fender Phaser, which is great. It's like the world's biggest, you know, if you need a boat anchor, you could use this. And uh-huh. if you want a phaser, you can use this. Um, <laughs> sounds great. It had a really cool big knob you could move with your feet to change the speed, which was cool. Um, so, yeah, things. I'm not, I, again, I wouldn't call myself a pedal collector as much as I'd call myself an accumulator. Uh-huh. And, and probably 20 of the 100 or so that I have are like things that I worked on, prototypes of things or yeah. the finished product or that kind of thing. So. And, that, and the prototypes, where do those end up when after, you, after you send them off? So sometimes uh, some of the product managers, that we have a product manager called Chase Paul who worked on the pedals for a while and definitely in the early part of the, you know, the main line of pedals. And Chase uh-huh. is super bright and super creative. And I gave him a couple of the, the, the pedals, the protos for pedals that he worked on. Okay. I've got some of them here, and I use, like, I've got a Pugilist prototype. I've got a few, you know, the Benz, the compressor that we did. I've got that one. So sometimes they'll find homes. Yeah. Um, the earl- sometimes the earlier samples and stuff, it's a pain because they're not together enough to be a functional pe- pedal. Uh, and so then that just makes them a storage issue. Uh-huh. So I've got a ton of stuff like that that I need to figure out what to do with and I think there's going to be some electronics recycling in my future <laughs> the, yeah. I, I really do appreciate your time so thank you for oh yeah no thanks it's fun, uh, fun conversation <laughs> any thoughts of, of bringing back the rotary speaker cabinets that, that Fender used to do I think in the 70s yeah Vibratone so yeah, when exactly. CBS had Fender they had Leslie as well and the Leslie Model 16 turned into the Fender Vibratone and we talk about it from time to time. We have a we have a pedal called the Pinwheel in the, in the main pedal line that has a pretty good um, DSP version of a Vibratone in it. I, the thing we have to kind of always think about is how many would we actually sell? One. And in the case of building, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And one to me as well. So that's two. Um, in the case of something like that, you know, that's, there's a, probably a lot of tooling costs and things getting the motors together because yeah. two motors and, and the, the drum and the belts and, the, and yeah. all that stuff. So odds are probably not great on something like that. We have talked about it, though. Um, I, have an, I have an old one, and I've brought it in from oh, time right. to time to try to entice people because there's nothing like that sound. Oh, yeah, it's the greatest sound ever. <laughs> and I have a Leslie 145 also um, oh, for wow. my Hammond. Um, and uh, and that's a different sound. And the fact that the rotor works on the you know on the vibratone, it kind of spins the sound up and around past the ceiling, you know, versus yeah. it, it flips ninety degrees and spins it around the walls with a regular Leslie. Yeah, it's a totally different thing. So yeah, I do bring it in from time to time and try to entice people. But so far, <laughs> no joy. They on reverb they sell for a lot of money. Those things. Yeah, they're, they're it's totally unique. Very different. They're very desirable for those who know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then I should I should ask you. So apart from your engineering, your guitar playing, your scoring, what what things do you do for fun? Um, I have an awesome family, and oh, so I that's try good. to hang out with them as much as possible. I have a beautiful wife and wonderful three wonderful kids, 
and um, we're all in various different parts of life and kind of getting through it. And, and so um, that's my biggest focus. That's probably my biggest focus of everything. Wow. And then uh, the Fender stuff occurs, and then what I have left over, I throw into music. Oh, very good. Very good. Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you, Stan. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate the questions. This has been a blast. No, it's a blast for me. This is I could get very very into the weeds, but I, I tried to stay as general as possible. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to How Guitar Will Travel. You can catch up on all the things I'm doing at thedeadlies.com. And I'm on all the social media platforms as well. And please support Vintage Guitar and all the wonderful things they do because they do many, many wonderful things for us guitar players. Thanks. Please subscribe. Please tell a friend. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye, guys.